0: Hello everyone and welcome to NGF News. My name is Alec and we have Joshua here as well with us. Um, today uh, we will be starting our first episode for Season 3. Um, we're very excited. We have a lot uh, planned for Season 3. Uh, more on the back end stuff, but um, we will hope that you guys will see some of the uh, the expansion portions of NGF News. Um, so for today, we're going to be talking about uh, just some updates uh, in Ukraine, as well as Israel and the Israel Hamas war. So we'll be using this as kind of a refresher and update. We won't be going into the background stuff that will be in previous episodes um, on our Israel Hamas section, where we do dive into the, the background uh, of Israel and Palestinian conflict. So um, but today it's just gonna be some updates to see where we are at and um also like what the what the future outlook is going to look like. So
1: Yeah, definitely. Um we're gonna start with the Ukraine war now. We're looking at a lot of stagnation at the moment in terms of the war. The counter offensive in many cases, uh and many analysts have said that it has failed. Um, But Ukraine has been shifting more towards their defensive postures to continue a strategy where they want to protect the Crimean Peninsula and the Black Sea waters. Uh, So the resources have been directed to domestic arms production. They've been speeding up negotiations with allies to move weapons over to Ukraine quicker as the old weapons that we had uh, given them are there, but now we want to start sending them new weapons. Uh, in terms of new military technology that the United States and NATO allies have. And also, we think that the Allies' funding, since it's been slowing down, has has pretty much led to the failure of their counteroffensive. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin warned the U.S. that if it cannot continue, or does not continue to send weapons to Ukraine, that Ukraine may fall to the Russians.
0: Yeah, so that's kind of been the major, well, the major point on where we're at. Uh, both sides have really just taken a defensive position and stayed where they are with no major movements. Um, if you look at one of those heat maps, um, I know I have one somewhere, but yeah, well, I uh, could share my uh, screen with while I was doing right it. Right
1: now, or this is a couple of weeks ago, there were, were missile strikes at the Kerch Strait on the bridge to and, and multiple attacks on the Russian Black Sea Fleet. So that was that was a few weeks ago. There's not much that's been happening since then. It's been very yeah. uh, just. I think they're going back to restructure their battle plans, uh, preparing for this very very cold Russian winter, as we all know from history. Nothing goes good if you attack the Russians during the winter time. You will always lose. Um, so, oh yeah,
0: even the Russians they're worried about winter. They the the Russian morale uh for the troops they're they're worried they don't want to move into Ukraine um I couldn't find the map but anyways <laughs> um but yeah. they even even the Russians and the Russian troops they don't want anything to do with it because they know most deaths occur during winter so we're we're just really right now eyeing where the aid where will be and when it will come um in the United States side um uh, there's been growing uncertainty and um, Senate Republicans have consistently blocked military and economic assistance for Ukraine. Um, Biden has warned um, that Kiev does need um, does need the money, and they're trying to compromise to pass $110 billion um, for both Ukraine and Israel. So they're going to split that amount between the two, which is a lot of money. That is about yep. one-eighth, I would say, of our defense budget. Of yeah, roughly one-eighth. Yeah. Yeah. So the the reason Republicans are voting against this uh, big package is because the uh, Republicans are currently wanting to look in. Um, They want to see more um, more work towards the the border. Uh, They want more border control and more border security for the United States before they um, approve uh, of using uh, of sending money to Ukraine and Israel, which. It it's understandable. Um, this growing toward this growing isolationism and and low low morale uh, for the United States is willingness to to be involved in conflicts abroad because United States uh, some I would say fifty percent of the population more towards leaning to the right side are kind of sick and tired of uh, these conflicts and feel as if we don't need to be involved. Um, but there is the other side that say we need we need to we need to be continuously involved and and we need to stay. Uh, flexing our muscles and providing these people weapons for not only the security of the the regions they're in but for also to protect our allies abroad um, so it's kind of been a very strong um, stalemate uh, within our own legislative branch here in the United States along with the EU big big stalemate uh, for the group because of growing far-right uh, in Israel and especially with uh, the recent uh, elections in, in Netherlands where they just got a yeah. um right leaning um or far right um prime minister so there's been this growing right movement um and wanting to look more inwards which historically um and uh, and behaviorally usually is what happens um political wise where in the first year you will see growing uh growing support for allies and then within the second or third year you will see more towards uh inwards looking um it's just kind of behavioral and it's it's just how how stuff is sometimes.
1: Yeah, um, the the whole the whole thing about Ukraine right now is it's turning into politics. Um, there's like Alex said, elections going on in Europe. We're heading into an election year in the United States, so of course it's going to become more and more increasingly political wars. And uh, the border policy, of course, is going to become increasingly more political. And you know the nature of politics is give and take, but. At the moment, I think there couldn't have been a better time if this was a good case thing to think about, a good case scenario to think about. There couldn't have been a better time for the funding to not come because it is winter time where the war is going to be slow. So we're running, we, we got very lucky in terms of foreign policy, from a foreign policy standpoint, from a, a tactic standpoint that we're heading into the winter in Russia and Ukraine, because if we weren't heading into the winter... I don't think the Ukrainians would have much longer. I would give them four to six months maximum. But because we're heading into the winter, we still have at least a year of fighting. But that doesn't mean that we cannot sit here and not resume giving them funding when the spring comes. You know, we we don't need to be giving them $110 billion. I don't think that's necessary. I also don't think uh-huh. it's necessary to give that much money to Israel, considering they had all of our weapons beforehand, but we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, the 110 billion, I think they can shrink that down in the spring. And I also think that the United States needs to look in, into NATO and our allies and say, hey, you guys need to start pumping in a little bit more, too. We've been supporting the, the Ukrainians the most. I think Germany, I think France, I think Italy, all the bordering countries should start pouring their own resources a little bit more than. What they have been doing so far, so that the United States isn't as strained as they were, and if Biden were smart to gain voters, he would go in the strategy to try and ask to uh lo- to lower the amount that he's sending over because it would be detrimental to his campaign uh if he didn't do
0: so fully agree um and it would help his campaign as well if he did the give and take but you know, what I what I yeah. personally think is that both in the United States and the EU, the the, the right-leaning um, politicians are using this stalemate, are using this winter to push their own agenda. And once springtime comes, you're, I fully agree with you, and that was actually going to be one of my talking points, was that once they start to see ground being lost during the, the springtime, or once springtime comes and they believe that Ukraine uh, can show a good counteroffensive, they will... Push those funds through. I don't think in the amount of what they're doing, but they want to see some. They want to see some progress first, and they're going to use a stalemate to push their own policy agendas, and then go back to go back to Ukraine, uh, providing them uh, the weapons they need. Because again, Russia, um, Europe is an integral part. You know, we need to protect our European allies. We need to protect European security. They are critical allies for us. Um, and losing ground and losing ground to Ukraine will put Russia closer to to our European allies. So it's all about European security. Which in result we have hundreds of bases in Europe. Our, our European allies are critical um, for development for both Europe and uh, U.S. development. So this is and also for oil and natural gas as well and other resources as well. So this is a it's it's important, but um, there's they they want to use this time to push their own agenda and even. Even if let's say during this winter time comes and the Ukrainians are losing ground, I truly believe that they will push that funding through, even if during the winter, but uh, hopefully this winter is more of kind of a dig in situation um and stay put so that's kind of where we're yeah. at um and we don't see any kind of well yeah and me and you we don't we don't really see anything um substantial within the russia ukraine situation we just we just see another dig in um same as last winter what? where they just dug in um and it's been like that if you look at the map uh, you can see all of the the uh east of ukraine has been the same it has not moved yeah. a little bit besides minor minor uh ukrainian um counter-offensive and the ability to collect um lost uh, lost territory
1: We'll know a lot more by the springtime of what's really going to happen and uh, intelligence. They're probably just going to rebuild their tactical uh, game and their intelligence to fight off each other. But we should definitely move on to the biggest question of the day, the biggest question of the year. The thing that I get the most phone calls about in my office
0: <laughs> oh,
1: and uh, So this is fascinating uh, for many reasons. A, I didn't see why, or I didn't predict that it was going to become this political. I'm not going to lie to you; I did not see it coming. I should have seen it coming, knowing the climate, but I didn't. Uh, I don't know if Alex feels the same, but I definitely
0: didn't. Um, I did. I, I knew it was going to be political real quick.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess, I guess you're more uh, pessimistic than I am. <laughs> um, but the, the second thing that I, I didn't be coming was how easy it was going to be for israel to just completely bomb the crap out of Gaza. now you're probably looking at me like well it's a tiny little place and you know the idf is a very formidable force but you are correct but i didn't think that they were going to strategically do that to keep them winning the war but i underestimated netanyahu's ability to screw things up for himself so, uh, just to give some statistics out, there's been 15,890 people killed in the uh, war so far, uh, which is a lot more than what's happened in Ukraine. This in civilian casualties. 45,000 wounded and Israel f- officials say that this is going to be the most intense time since the start of the invasion. You're, you're starting to see them move south. In uh, a critical junction point that happened a couple or about a week ago, there was a five-day humanitarian pause that was broken by Hamas militants that shot up civilians in uh, Jerusalem. So that those are all interesting things to think about.
0: Yeah, and Netanyahu consistently states that he will continue this war until Hamas is fully destroyed. Uh, but this is probably one of the messiest conflicts in I would say history. I mean, he is targeting as long as it's just one Hamas person it could be under a a building in a tunnel somewhere he will obliterate whatever it is just to get just to get a few hamas terrorists it's just no. it, it is mind-boggling that the idf and Netanyahu is actively just destroying anything that it whatever it is it doesn't matter it Casualties—it doesn't matter to them, and it is absolutely messy. There could have been hundreds of different ways they could have approached this. IDF, like you said, is a very formidable force. Where they could have done this special operations tactic, they could have done this in any other way except bombing and destroying Gaza, destroying uh, buildings, hurting families. I mean, killing—look how many they killed for what? For what? To kill a yeah. few Hamas targets but kill 15,000 innocent civilians for what it, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to stay, you know, hold, hold judgment until we know everything, but come on, this is, this is, it it is one. It's like, should imagine if the United States, right. Was, uh, let's go back to, let's go back to two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, 2011, 2012, where we found and we killed, um, The, what, I'm blanking. Al-Qaeda. We went in there, six special forces, six SEAL team troops, went in there, killed them, extracted, left. Israel and IDF want one person. They have named one Hamas person as their most wanted. Uh, Where is? How bad is IDF intelligence been? Where has it been? You know, I'm very curious to see, like, uh, if they want to be successful. I think they should just take a step back and, and say, we have a problem within our intelligence. Our intelligence is crap. And they need to understand that, well, the only way we're winning this war is because we're destroying so many, just anything, just to get to, the, to get the Hamas. That is a, for me, that is a weak military, it, me, me personally, because if you had a strong military and a truly strong intelligence force, they would go in there with, A fantastic intelligence find exactly who they need, extract, and leave. That's Mm -hmm. that's just my hot take on that. That their military is actually weak and not really that strong.
1: Yeah, I mean, three hundred thousand reservists along with one hundred sixty thousand standing army. You'd think they would have drawn, you know, gone to the drawing board and tried to divvy up how they could, you know, keep the war going. Without bombing them, they were supposed to stop bombing a long time ago. But they still don't feel comfortable going in with a full ground invasion. Now, I I we're, we're I'm releasing an article uh, for next week's weekly watch about how Israel needs to restrain and has to needs to restrain restraint Gaza. And the biggest thing for Israel right now is PR. This is the PR game for Israel. Nobody, ex- okay, except for very very far left liberals, nobody believes. That Israel does not have the right to defend itself against Hamas. Not a soul. Everybody knows that what Hamas did was horrible, and that Israel Israel has the right to defend themselves. The problem is, is that they are losing the PR game because a) they're tactically destroying hospitals and civilians, and b) they are not going back to the drawing board, and they're using their own pride to. Uh, they're using they're they're going with their own pride instead of going with their with their their brains. Figure out a strategy to win the PR game. If Israel wants to win the PR game, they have to rethink their military tactics. It's a ground invasion. It's B use special forces to minimize the uh, the casualties, and then they need to resume. The humanitarian pause, that that five-day humanitarian pause should not have been broken because a couple of Hamas militants killed a few Israelis. They are losing the big picture. If they had sat there and said, okay, this is bad, we condemn Hamas, but we're going to have continue this pause for a few more days to get aid in, they're going to look like the bigger, for the better term, men. They're going to look like the bigger man. And Hamas is going to look like the cowards and the bad guys, and that's the beginning of the winning the PR game. Now, I again, winning the PR game doesn't mean covering up what they're doing, and, and you know, they're bombing hospitals, and Israel's like, no, we're not. They cannot do that. But winning the PR game is playing smart. Casualties happen in war, but if you can minimize casualties, they can start showing that they have killed or either uh arrested hamas leaders they can start winning the pr game and that's what they have to start doing or they're going to lose support the united states especially if if a conservative gets into office in the presidency you can expect that funding to disappear from israel and if israel doesn't want that to happen they need to start acting smart now
0: Mm -hmm. i want to go back to the aid stuff real quick and um there's been something that came out of the u.n um, but before I go to what the Secretary General said, I just want to talk about the aid supplies real quick. So on November twenty-second, I'm going back to the ceasefire, the four-day um, ceasefire to release fifty hostages. Um, and a part of the and a part of the deal was Israel will release one hundred fifty Palestinians, um, including I think it was um, three Americans uh, as well. Um, and in that time, um, the WHO was able to come up with something. Um, not unfortunately during the, the ceasefire, but um, as of today, um, they used uh, they were able to deliver supplies to two hospitals in southern Gaza for the first time, um, and then they were able to help 4,500 patients. Um, now we're we're expecting that it, more aid might come uh, to Israel because Israel has planned uh, to open some two of two places in border crossings um, between Israel and Gaza. But um, they're going to be inspecting every single vehicle that goes in and out of Gaza, which then brings to um, the situation now um, for Article 99. So I read this article. I think it just came out uh, not too long ago while I was typing up my notes. So the U.N. Secretary General wants to um, invoke Article 99 of the U.N. Charter to formally warn the Security Council of a global threat uh, for Israel's war on Gaza. Um, Article 99 is the ability for the Secretary General to alert the Security Council about threats to peace, international peace, and allows Gutierrez to speak at the council without being invited by a member state. Um, So he's been, Gutierrez has been advocating for um, immediate humanitarian assistance since the October 18th, but Security Council could not come up with a resolution in time um, because of the permanent members and Israel being a, uh, with the United States uh, backing Israel and Russia kind of being the ones to to kind of, I would say, condemn Israel, but also, yeah, I would say, make Israel look bad. That's so, against the U.S. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So the Security Council, if it chooses to act on Gutierrez's advice and adopts a ceasefire, it could enforce it using powers like imposing sanctions or deploying an international force, um, In Israel, uh, in between Israel and Palestine. So that is really interesting because this hasn't been, this only has been invoked four times in the past. So I'm very curious to see if the Secretary General invoking Article 99 could have some weight in the Security Council to say, listen, if you all don't get your shit together, we're going to have a big problem in the Middle East. And I think he needs to be very strong with the way he approaches it. And use a bigger picture model, saying if we don't solve this problem within Israel and Palestine, then A, B, and C will happen. If he goes in there and saying, "Guys, uh, stop, bad," they're not good. They don't care enough. Israel, uh, the United States will continue um, to provide its support for Israel. Russia will continue to to approve or deny anything that goes against the United States and Israel. So, I, I really hope that article 99 is the first step into stopping this this conflict because it article 99 has been used in the past and it has worked so i wonder for the fifth time in its history could it be successful
1: i you know this is where i'm pessimistic is when it comes to the united nations uh this is a just a band of morons it's a (sighs) band of a waste of time and and listen, if the United Nations was effective, the Security Council would have gotten together the day after the conflict broke out, got a peacekeeping force sent over there, and stopped the fighting. But the reality is, is it's not effective because of the way the Security Council is set up. Because of the way the Security Council is set up, I don't think Gutierrez has a leg to stand on. Even though the article has been worked, worked in the past... I think because of the the extremities of is, Israel and Netanyahu and the extremity of Russia, who's going to oppose anything the United States does, even if the United States agree, agrees to start sending aid in or something. I, I just don't know what Russia's going to do. We don't know what Putin and his and cohort his are going to do. Let's just oppose it just to say, you know, screw the U.S. Um, so I don't think that this is going to be very effective. I think if you want if we want the UN to be effective we need to just scrap it and it and use the rules. That's just how it's going to be because the UN should have sent peacekeepers in a long time ago. Now if we really want something to happen we need to get NATO involved as peacekeepers and have NATO go in there as a NATO force, not an American force, not a British force, not a Canadian, not a German. NATO forces sit down get aid inside, and then broker uh, a peace deal. Because at this point, I think Israel needs to look and see that there needs to be a two-state solution with the eradication of Hamas. And if they can't see that, then at the end of the day, there's nothing that we're going to do to change anyone's mind over there.
0: That's very interesting, because I'm really curious on what NATO is, if NATO is involved, on what side they would, if they choose a side. I mean we were trying to advocate for for something where a solution where they kind of point guns at both sides and say both of you need to chill out. Um but I'm I'm pretty fearful that NATO because of how you know it's it's a western force and all mostly all western countries have come out and said we will back Israel. Um I'm fearful that they will not um be successful in brokering some kind of deal. Uh, I would be more kind of and going back to to the Russia thing, right? Russia has been very mm-hmm. critical of Israel, so maybe Gutierrez has some leg because Russia might wants to use this as a time for PR for itself to mm-hmm. to kind of push away from from Russia uh, Russia versus Ukraine and and use it as a time to to say, hey, you know, look what look at all the good things we're doing. So. I think for Russia, this this is the time to boost their PR and for the United States, it could also be some time to boost their PR as well because of their inability to to be in there and, and broker a deal. But you know what I want to see more of? I want to see more of Saudi Arabia going in there and saying, OK, we need a broker a deal because Saudi Arabia in the past. And we've talked about this in a previous um, episode where they said we will open ties with Israel. Only if they solve the Palestine problem, they will refuse to continue to normalize relations unless the Palestine question has been resolved. So, what I want to see is Saudi Arabia and other trusting uh, Middle Eastern partners be the ones that are neutral. And I would I would I would argue that Saudi Arabia is neutral um, in this in this situation where they want to see a peaceful Middle East, but they also do want to see a two-state solution, and they do care about the lives mm-hmm. of the Palestinians. So I think Saudi Arabia is the only country that is able to to do something about the Israel-Palestine conflict. Not Egypt, not Lebanon. Saudi Arabia needs to be involved, and they should be the ones being the lead and are serving as the international community's proxy um, to deliver aid, to deliver solutions, and to be the negotiating face.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think they could bring the UAE in there. I think they can bring Qatar in there. I think they could bring Bahrain in there as well as, as mediators. Um in the I even think they can introduce Iraq if Iraq were to be on board. Just to go back uh for one second about uh-huh. what NATO policy. So the Secretary General said that it the Middle East is out of the alliance's area of responsibility. So there's our you know, the saving grace, I guess that's gone and so you know and yeah i disagree with that statement but that's not i'm not a nato member i'm also not a powerful person so it's not it's nothing i can do about it well yeah i think i agree i think saudi arabia is the one of the key key solutions it, it is going through saudi, the saudis i honestly think that they have the ability to talk and make diplomatic relations with iran i think qatar can also help with that i think the uae can help broker deals with with, between israel and the palestinians uh especially in the west bank they can help negotiate and i think maybe they'll help help eradicate hamas i think the i think the middle east is also just tired of of terrorism being known Uh as this is where terrorism is bred um and 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 for one it's not true terrorism is bred to be bred anywhere but three, you know, it, it's just something that because there was a 20 year war, I'm sorry, if you can't really go, really go back, it's a 40 year war with the Soviets. Um, emerged. and so I think what they're trying to do is they're, they're, they're trying to do their own PR as we've been discussing this whole episode on Israel and Palestine. So, um, yeah, I think that's a good start is going to the Saudis and saying, Hey, you want peace in the Middle East, you know of the drawing you're, go
0: the come one, up with something. you're the ones that could do it, you are the only yeah. one and it's sad that we have to to broker this through the idea and incentivize this through the idea of PR because that's essentially what everyone wants each other to do is they want to solve the problem, but what's in it for me, and mm-hmm. the, the fact that it, it just has to be PR 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 and not just the idea of oh, innocent Palestinians are dying. Israelis are being captured and murdered by Hamas. We need to do something. It's just about, we've incentivized the fact that it's a PR problem. And I, that is, it's it's unfortunate that the world has to see it as a PR thing. So, yeah, that's, very it's, much it's so. sad. It's sad. Yeah. I just hope that this, this comes to an end because lots of innocent Palestinians are, are dying by the masses every yeah. single day. Unnecessary bombings, mm-hmm. messy, messy war. That could have been done in, in many other ways if they wanted to eradicate Hamas, and I hope that some supplies, or as many supplies as possible, um, get into get into uh, the Gaza Strip, but I don't know if you have anything else to say, uh, Josh.
1: Nope, that's all I got. We'll try to keep you guys updated on the situation um, mm-hmm. when things come out, so...
0: Yeah, we'll have... Well, we basically post our articles uh, on our website, so you guys... Um, can all go on there and see uh, all our articles, see what we've written. And yeah, that's pretty much it. So, uh, thank you all for listening in to Season 3, Episode 1. Uh, we're really excited for Season 3, uh, and we hope you are all are too. So, um, we'll catch you in the next episode.
1: Yes, sir.